Katie, we're back. It is awesome. I can't believe it's been so many months since season one, but here we are at the beginning of season two and so much has happened over the last year. Life has moved so quickly, especially with respect to commercial space flight and I, I don't even know the current numbers anymore of how many people who have been to space and there's a new registry in the Association of Space Explorers. So, so actually, actually what, what you're facing is you're no longer special, Katie. Oh, there are way too many people in space these space days. Space is so special that I, I think I'll never stop feeling You'll special. always be special. And I was kidding. Of course but you're all special. The peop- I mean, the, the more the, that so many people have gotten to go means so much to me. But if you look back over this last year, I mean, not just people going up into space. We had the James Webb Telescope eventually getting up into space. Astonishing. We've had announcements of new missions to Venus. What else has been going on? It's been a crazy year. It's all happening. And it's happening now here on season two of Mission Interplanetary. I, I've been really excited about talking to some of these folks and some of the, some of them I've been looking forward to talking to for years. So with that, we should probably get on with the show. I'm Katie Coleman. I'm Andrew Maynard. Welcome to Mission Interplanetary. Today on Mission Interplanetary, we're asking, is space mining really viable? Speaking as an astronaut, Katie, do you really think that space mining is viable? At this moment, I'm going to say no. And at the same time, will it be? Yes. I'm going to be interested to find out how viable or not viable it is at this moment. You know, what is the collection mechanism? I'm really interested in how this might work. So, Andrew, before we do that, you know, we have a little agenda. We do. Weekly obsessions. And just like last season, I'm always a little bit afraid to ask this question. As you should be. What are you obsessed about this week? Well, Katie, my obsession at the moment is actually vinyl in space, but not the vinyl you might think. So usually when we think about vinyl in space, or at least space geeks, when they think about vinyl in space, they think about the gold records. Remember those that went up with the Voyagers? I think about the, like kind of terrible couches that we'd have to sit on waiting to go launch. (laughs) So maybe that's what we should be talking about with vinyl. But actually, what I was thinking about was, has anybody thought about how on earth you play vinyl in zero gravity? Because a record player requires gravity. You require gravity to pull that needle, that stylus down onto the record. And I'm just sitting here thinking... Everybody that's up in space so far and everybody that's going to be up in space in the future in low gravity or microgravity is going to be robbed of being able to listen to vinyl unless somebody can somehow crack this. (laughs) They're going to have to work really hard for vinyl. Right. I did it. You know, there are all sorts of things like sort of swinging the deck around your head. So you got that simulated gravitational pull. Oh, I was going to say around your head is... You know, because then when you let go, I mean, that when that word whoops goes out, I mean, that's a bad thing, right? <laughs> right yeah. But again, you're working really hard to do something that is probably more easily done in different ways, but they will lose out by not having vinyl. I think so, yeah. yeah. My first mission was 1995, and we each got to bring six cassette tapes up with us. Ooh. Of course, you'd record different artists on different tapes, and, you know, because that's what you're going to listen to in, the, your, in your little tapes. Walkman, right? And so you listen to that. And then on my second mission, we got to bring CDs. Right. And then on my on my third mission to the space station, that's when music became actually relatively infinite in that whatever you could get them to ship from the ground, you could listen to, which was pretty cool. 
But again, we didn't have our phone, no phones, no iPads for me. They have it much better now. Right, right, right. But but I mean, that that's sort of, that's three decades of history there, going from cassettes to CDs to MP3s. So, Andrew, I live in an old farmhouse. It's like more than 200 years old. And on the floor are carpets, oriental rugs. And my, my husband just loves rugs. In most of our homes, we walk on something. We walk mm-hmm. on wood, we walk on carpet, we walk on vinyl, I mean, stone, carpets. So what will be the the oriental rugs, so to speak, of our future in space? Oh, interesting. What will, what will be the treasured, like you walk in or you float in or fly into somebody's home and just go, oh, wow, that is a beautiful thing. Because I right. mean, because they're stories. These rugs are stories and they're, they're, they're handmade by people. Right, right. Right. And and so there's so much that goes into them. And I can imagine, I just with that, I mean, you go up to the International Space Station, I, I can imagine a multi-purpose rug. So you've got it there as art on the wall, but presumably that wall becomes a floor depending on your orientation. I like it. And if you ever need to like, I don't know, move someone off the space station, you could roll them up. <laughs> <laughs> the multi-purpose oriental rug on the space station. Exactly. So I'm not going to push this obsession any further, actually. This okay. has got dark pretty fast. But it'll be interesting how we tell our stories when we when we start living in space. I think so. So we should get back to the big question for this week. Mining in space. Mining in space. So the concept of mining in space or on planets, moons, asteroids, etc. really has been standard trope in science fiction for decades now. You just need to go back to the Star Wars universe where it mentions the minds of Kessel or Frank Herbert's Dune, you know, the the big film that was turned into a blockbuster last year, which is about a galactic civilization based around extraction of spice from the planet Arrakis. Then more recently, asteroid mining is a major element in the story world of The Expanse, which is both a series of novels by James S.A. Corey and also a popular TV series. So the concept of mining in space is firmly embedded in popular imagination and the way we conceive of our space futures. But this isn't just science fiction. There are efforts underway to make space mining a reality, mostly focusing on developing the technologies needed for future efforts. Last year, after his trip up to space, Jeff Bezos talked about moving all heavy industry into space in the coming decades in the hopes of, as he said, keeping Earth as this big, beautiful gem of a planet. We've had a history of space mining in popular stories. We have industry leaders endorsing the idea. But back to my earlier question, how viable is it? Well, someone who's done a lot of thinking about this, and not just thinking, but actually working to make it a reality and to make infrastructure a reality, is Chris Lewicki. He's a former JPL, Jet Propulsion Lab flight director, a former president of Planetary Resources, which is a company that developed technology for asteroid mining. He's an entrepreneur and an engineer focused on the economic development of space infrastructure. And he's a great and deeply informed person to talk with about space mining. I got so much out of this conversation, and I think everybody else will as well. Chris Lewicki, welcome to Mission Interplanetary. I'm very happy to be here. Looking forward to our conversation. I think this is going to be a blast. Actually, oh. that's very appropriate, isn't it? Blast. Andrew. As long as it's contained and directed. <laughs> right. 
So I guess that sort of leads us into at least the beginning of today's conversation, mining in space. And I got to ask you this, Chris, the most obvious question, why on earth would we want to mine stuff in space? For the very same reason that we would want to mine stuff on Earth. Uh, we do things, they need resources. Even resources in space are natural resources. Uh, they're a little bit difficult to get. But it's how you would think of how do we scale humanity? For a long time, the Earth seemed like an infinite place, that we would never run out of things, that there would never be constraints. But we've developed technology, and we've brought that infinite a lot closer to us. There's also a lot more people on the planet than there's ever been. But space is our next opportunity to do more of the same. So if we want to have large amounts of people and industry and economy and society in space, we're probably going to want to get things on site instead of having to ship everything in. So I'm going to actually go dark from the get-go. And I know we're going to have a fantastic conversation about how how wonderful the opportunities are here. But I've got to ask, because somebody's going to be thinking this. Okay, so we've strip-mined the Earth. Are you saying we've run out of stuff to do here, so now we're going to strip-mine space? This doesn't sound like the best plan ever. People ask that question a lot. And, you know, I, I think it, it could be... I guess both reasons in the same. Um, the not in my backyard, eventually we run out of backyards. Right. Yet we still have families. We still enjoy buying products. But to flip it around, I think that everything we've learned on Earth about doing it the wrong way, doing it the harmful way, helps us do it again better when we're doing it in space. So we can either choose to keep living and, and keep growing and uh, keep expanding uh, or not do that. So I'd rather try to figure out how to do it better next time. So, Chris, what are some of those things that we've learned down here? Well, it, a lot of what we've had problems with in mining is doing dangerous, toxic things near to where people live and near to their water and food supplies. So to first order, we don't immediately have that problem in space. But if we're successful, we will. Being able to be more efficient with how we extract things. You know, one of the things I think we can do in space that we haven't done until recently here on Earth is understanding the environmental impact before we get started. It's not necessarily, you know, making that impact zero, but it's being able to make informed choices about we need to do this thing. In order to do that thing, we maybe need rocket fuel. And we're going to have an impact somewhere. We're going to have an impact on creating rocket fuel on the Earth. We're going to have an impact on creating rocket fuel on a location on the moon, or maybe an asteroid, or maybe Mars. So we can make a choice of, well, where does it seem best to do that activity? And I, I can't predict in advance what that, that right answer might be. So I think just informed choices is one thing that we can do better when we do it in space. So, so this does raise a really important question, a really basic question. What are we going to mine? Where are we going to mine it? And why? Actually, that was three questions, not one. <laughs> Well, probably the first thing that people would understand is mining and resources is thinking about the materials that we use for transportation, fuel, right. a resource that we might use in space. Maybe one of the first ones is oxygen. Uh, oxygen is certainly something that we need to breathe. We're getting really good at scrubbing it and recycling it uh, so we can use it over and over again. Uh, but oxygen, as it turns out, is 70 to 80 percent the weight of most rocket fuels that uh, high propulsion rockets use. So even if we can just do that, because of course on Earth, we don't need the oxygen for the internal combustion engine to run, that's just in the air. But in space, you've got to bring that with you. 
So oxygen is first, probably what it usually is connected to. Hydrogen is second. You can burn the hydrogen and uh, oxidize it with oxygen. And of course, if you have hydrogen and oxygen, you also have water, right. which is also useful for us humans. So that that's probably first in terms of what you'd think of mining, but we can go both directions from that starting point. Yeah, so I, I'm probably the ignorant one here. We've got you and then we've got Katie, who's obviously been up to space. I'm just the, the earthbound physicist. Um, but where do you find oxygen in space? I'm sure there are people out there thinking oxygen is very much an earthbound thing. Can you really find it off Earth? Well, you usually can't just find it in its elemental form. And we're the only planet where it's kind of freely available in the atmosphere and significant quantities. Uh, a mission that I participated in at uh, NASA JPL was the Phoenix Mars lander. And it dug 10 centimeters under the soil uh, near the northern pole of Mars and found water ice, uh-huh. just uh, as we had measured with the uh, the Mars Odyssey gamma ray spectrometer, and many scientists had predicted it would be there. So that's water ice. There are a lot of data to imply that there's water ice in the permanently shadowed craters in the moon. And this is the North Pole and the South Pole and the way the moon is situated. There's parts of them that never, ever see the sun, and they only see the three-degree Kelvin temperature of space and, and the moon itself. So you can imagine a comet, a comet impacts the moon, sprays up some of the water that's on a comet, which is what we often see in its tail. But that settles back down and lands in the crater and never leaves ever again. So we, we haven't proven that conclusively yet, but the data looks really good. And then the next place you might find water in the solar system is on asteroids, and specifically near-Earth asteroids, because they may end up being a little bit more accessible or easier to get to than it is to make a trip into the moon's gravity well and mm-hmm. back out of the moon's gravity well. And uh, missions like uh, Japan's Hayabusa and Hayabusa 2 mission and the U.S.'s OSIRIS-REx mission are returning samples, and some of them are already back here on Earth. And we know that there's hydroxyls and hydr- hydrated minerals. And you that's not exactly water, but you can kind of think of it like the clay that you make pottery out of. When you fire a clay pot in a kiln, what you're focused on is the clay, and the clay gets dry. Right, but you're removing the water. Yeah, Yeah. so in asteroid mining, you're interested in what left the pot. <laughs> Interesting, uh, yeah. And that that's a little bit what asteroid mining will probably look like in the very beginning. And even moon mining, you'll be doing high-temperature things. Uh, and then the last thing I'll mention, going back to your initial question on oxygen, half of the regolith on the moon, ilmenite and other minerals, is oxygen by mass. So it's bound to a bunch of things that you know are difficult to remove it from. But if you heat it up to really, really high temperatures, the oxygen comes right off and you could use that you know, without it really needing to, to go anywhere. It's anywhere and you land on the moon, uh, you're standing on 50% by weight oxygen. I mean, is that something that we can easily, we've looked at it down here. Is that really going well where we go, okay, we can do it down here, we can do it up there? Yeah, NASA has funded a lot of research, as has ESA. There are a couple of different private companies who are proposing this as their business model. And I don't know if they're flying on on missions soon in the commercial lunar payload services. But it, most of the scientists that I talk to say, from a laboratory standpoint, this is a known quantity and a done deal in terms of the chemistry. But I think ultimately the challenge technologically is going to come down to one of proximity. Uh, asteroid mining was of interest to my my former company, Planetary Resources, because the NASA had just really wound down their moon plans at the end of the 2000s and hadn't yet spun back up Artemis. And 
China wasn't interested in the moon and SpaceX hadn't developed any technology or won any contracts related to the moon yet. Uh, so if there was no infrastructure, well, starting at the place that needed the least infrastructure was, was probably the easiest place. But if there's a bunch of activity at the moon, well, you know, just like trading towns and mining outposts, you, you want to go where the activity is. Right. So I, I was going to ask, so from your perspective now, looking at asteroids versus moon, I'm assuming you're veering towards the moon, both from an infrastructure pers perspective, but also looking at the resources that are there. Certainly, including that uh, the use of it would be right on the surface of the moon. Right. So it doesn't matter where, you know, how good the resource is anywhere in, in the entire solar system. If you are on the moon and you can get it from the moon, that's the right answer. Right. I think the oxygen is an easy first step. I as an engineer, skeptical is a strong word, so I won't use it. I was going to call you a glass half full kind of, or yeah, half full kind well, of guy. <laughs> the permanently shadowed craters are unbelievably cold. Uh, we just have no way to relate to how cold of a temperature that mm. is. And people have seen the James Webb deploy and the uh, seven different layers of the thermal um, blanket. And, you know, the, the warm side of James Webb is hundreds of degrees and the cold side is 30, 40, 50 Kelvin. And that's a hundred degrees colder than liquid nitrogen, right. which is probably the coldest thing most people have ever seen. And it's, it's just a really difficult environment to design anything in, you know, if you're going to have mechanisms, well, how are you going to lubricate those mechanisms? You know, mm -hmm. how are you going to deal with glass and wear? If you're going to have, let's say, plastic circuits or even you know space qualified circuits that have teflon coating on them there's something called the glass transition temperature and a permanently shadowed crater on the moon is below almost all of the glass transition temperatures so anything that needs to bend will very likely break right instead of bending so we need to design all kinds of new engineering solutions to either protect those problems from ever happening you know maybe we keep the thing warm but there, you're always going to have that thing that needs to be out in the cold part. So I, I think it's, as an engineer, I think mining permanently shadowed craters is even more difficult than asteroid mining remotely robotic in, in zero G. Interesting. And they're both big challenges. Yeah. So then how do we address these challenges? So just look at the, the moon for a, an example. Can we actually develop the expertise and the technology on Earth and transport it up there? Or do we need research stations on the moon before we can even begin to think about mining at scale? Well, th this is a great question because it gets to exactly part of the mining value chain. And mm -hmm. in space, NASA's planetary science program and, and the Apollo program is, I guess, a unwitting participant in that uh, has given us lots of data as to you know, what's on the moon, at least the, the six locations we've visited. Uh, we've learned a lot more about asteroids and comets and the surface of Mars. So we've done you know, a lot of scientific prospecting, which has informed us what's out there. But we've really just started and just barely started the actual resource prospecting. OSIRIS-REx and Hayabusa are probably the, the two first in that category. NASA is launching a rover called Viper uh, on a commercial lander in a few years. And Viper is going to, I think, visit the South Pole. And they've announced the landing site, which I can't recall off the top of my head. But it's essentially they're going to drive on the outside perimeter mm -hmm. of one of these permanently shadowed craters because they, they probably can't drive over the rim. They don't quite know the conditions. Right. And it's, it's not designed for the temperatures. So the 
the long answer I just gave you, the short answer is the next step is prospecting. Right. We need to understand what's there and in what form it's there so that we can understand the problems that we're going to have in trying to get it. But this is this seems to be really important because it's really easy to talk tritely about mining in space. And we've all seen the sci-fi movies where this happens. But from what you're saying, there are a whole series of steps before we get there. And some of these are really quite difficult, complex steps. And we've got to sort of play the long game, it seems, to start taking these steps before we can get even close to getting stuff off an asteroid or out of the ground and doing things with it. Yeah, absolutely. One of the most surprising things I learned as a spacecraft engineer starting into the business of asteroid mining was that a mine here on Earth, it's not uncommon that it's 30 years from the moment that you decide, hey, I might build a mine here, um, to going through the entire process of qualifying it and figuring out which is the best property and you know all the different deployments and technologies and regulation all the way to the point that you're actually producing maybe copper that's going to go to a customer. Now that can be 3 decades. Yep. And what is completely different in space and this is where it goes from technology and science into law, policy and I'll even say the tax code. Right. The the law, policy and tax code here on earth are set up in such a way that a 30-year business plan for a copper mine uh, works out just fine. Uh, and there are, there are ways that investors can get involved at different stages of that. And you know maybe there's a change in the market, or you learn about a new technology, or your mine isn't as good as you thought it was. There's a lot of ways to protect your downside, what I'll say here on Earth. You know, balance your taxes and have an opportunity maybe to change your direction. There aren't yet really any of those ways in space. And that was one of the challenges our company experienced was, you know, we tried to build something that's a little bit of a, of a mineral exploration, not quite a real estate uh, company, because as it turns out, the, the law isn't yet defined in that area in space. But that's part of what needs to be developed in parallel with the technology and our understanding of the science. What would the startup process look like? here on Earth? What would you do first? Probably the most important question to ask first is, where are you going to need to send the material that you mine? Is it going to be used locally for something you need to do in a specific area on the moon? Or is it something we're going to be using in Earth orbit or a cislunar orbit? Or is it something that we need to bring back here on Earth? So understanding that pipeline and value chain of where it needs to go is critical, uh, both in thinking of where you're going to get it and how much infrastructure you need to deploy either to store it locally or return it. So even if basically money isn't a factor and there's not an equation you're trying to balance, it's still just as hard to keep it there and need, need it for something there on the moon as it is to say we need to deliver it back to Earth or bring it somewhere else. It doesn't matter whether you're buying something off the internet buying something from your kid's school fundraiser or ordering something from an industrial supplier, the transportation cost always matters. Right. And space amplifies the transportation costs and the transportation logistics. Because now, not only do you have to go there and back to get the thing, you have to you know, send all your forward activity to deliver all the things you know, we're going to need a power plant on the moon and we're going to need storage capability and we're probably going to use astronauts and we're going to come up with a new word for people who aren't government employees, but 
do all the hard labor. <laughs> mm. uh, they'll still wear spacesuits, and the line uh, to do that role will be a thousand kilometers long, no doubt. So now we're talking the expanse, right? <laughs> so t- well, <laughs> I think what we're talking about is is look at anything that we do here on planet Earth that's at a big scale, whether it's right. building a stadium or a railroad uh, or putting on a county fair. We're we're going to get to that that point in space, I think, in the next. 30, 40, 50 years to where it'll be an occupation that's available to people to to work on the construction crew that's building, you know, the new monorail system that's going between Armstrong base and Gagarin base on the moon. But but what really interests me here is on Earth, we're in a resource-rich environment. To build stuff takes a myriad different bits and pieces. I mean, even down to the the, the really small quantities of vital elements that you need to, to build stuff and build infrastructure. As soon as you're on the moon, we've got some resources there, but they're somewhat limited. So maybe you've got the regolith to get oxygen out of, potentially use it as a source of building material. But if you want to build the infrastructure of pipes, of electrical conduits, of um, integrated circuits and all that stuff, I'm assuming we're still going to have to transport stuff up from Earth or we're going to have to be really imaginative with how we use the materials at hand. Yeah, it's very likely that you know any... Uh, any settlement or or base or infrastructure anywhere in the solar system for a long time is going to be importing stuff from the earth you know long longer than even you know any any of the colonies of many centuries ago depended on their parents in that regard and in in, in the particular case the moon it's missing a lot of key stuff you know the, the water isn't most everywhere it doesn't have the atmosphere the metals that are in the crust aren't great conductors but if you start looking at the other way, it's like, well, think about adobe houses and adobe and mud huts. You know, I, I think of these things having gone to school in the desert southwest. You know, for eons, people just live that way because those materials were in abundance. Right. And they solved the problem that they have. So our ability to pile up regolith, for example, as a radiation shield and to use the metals that are there as some structural reinforcing agents and Maybe there's a small mixture of material that we can bring with us from Earth that turns regolith into, you know, something like asphalt or concrete. Probably not quite as good as either of them, but a landing pad is probably the most important thing we can build in the early days on the moon so we aren't sandblasting everything in the area every time we leave or uh, arrive. Yeah, so just talk a bit more about that, because again, it comes down to the science fiction view of what it's going to be like living on the moon or elsewhere, where we tend to forget about the practicalities. So I can't imagine that many people have thought about landing pads as being one of the most important (laughs) things. And So what else are we missing here when we begin to think about what it means not only to mine the moon, um, but to actually build community somewhere like that? Yeah, well, landing pads for me is like the first obvious thing. And if, you know, you could think of them as runways. You know, it, planes would be much less useful uh, if we were still landing on grass, grass, dirt runways that you know occasionally had deer and big rocks in them. But if you think about that on the moon, you know, you've got a rocket coming in with an exhaust velocity that's pretty amazing, no atmosphere to slow anything down. So anything that that rocket plume hits is on a suborbital trajectory. Mm-hmm which in some case, people have made some predictions that some of that material may end up in lunar orbit, probably a really small amount. 
But that's the first. We, we, thing, we're know. talking about lunar smogs, by the way. You realize <laughs> <laughs> we're just going to create recreate LA on the moon with all this stuff in the atmosphere. Well, and space debris. Well, the good news is there. Yeah, there, there's there's no convection or eddy current, so it's not going to blow around. Right. It will eventually settle back down, but the problem is it's moving really fast when it's doing so, and it's going to you know micro pit your solar cells, and there might be a chunk here or there that could be a danger to your oxygen supply if you're storing that in a tank, or maybe something's going to puncture through a pressure vessel where you've got the agriculture growing, and you're going to lose lose that whole environment and lose a crop. So being able to set up a safe place that you know we can have one vehicle going back and forth much less a lot of them is probably you know plan one the other thing too is we don't have the benefit of a magnetosphere and an atmosphere to protect us from the sun acting up from time to time so every once in a while there's a really big slower flare and uh, that does disrupt things here on earth if they're big enough but it's it's never really a danger to us residents of the planet directly because we've got plenty of plenty of things in the atmosphere to protect us but on the moon you don't uh so you know in this case being able to have i like to think of them as a tornado shelter you know you can get the warning that the tornado is coming and you you know you need to you need to go to your safe harbor and everyone can go to it uh and then it passes and after it passes you get the all clear and everyone comes back out and goes about their business so in the same way that we build up our critical safety infrastructure in any town here in the United States or around the world, you're going to have need that same type of thinking. It might look like it's starting as a base, but it's probably going to be a place where people live. Chris, given the chance in the next 20 years, would you become a lunar miner? I definitely would. <laughs> Chris, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. And we're going to track this. We're going to see whether you actually get there. We will be watching. You're welcome. On Mission Interplanetary, we can't show you pictures of space. But we can share what space sounds like. In a segment we call Sounds of Space. secret i feel i always feel like i'm on a game show for this part which is good i always wanted to be on a game show okay andrew what do you think that was goodness me katie well it's obviously i think sonification so it's some data set or something which has been converted into sounds and music um and it's really quite beguiling. I mean, it, it sounds like a celestial orchestra tuning up, but a really tuneful orchestra. Um, I don't know. I'm struggling on this. It's sort of, it's it's sparkly and poppy, which suggests that it's some part of the, the, the galaxy or solar system or something. I don't know. Um, something sparkly and poppy. Tell me, what was it? 
Well, I think you you have a lot of the elements that are present. That was the sound of the butterfly nebula. Oh right, yeah. It, you know, it sounded really nebularish. Well, but but it sounded to me, it sounded very butterfly-like. Actually, yes, they capture that. As if you like arrived at a place in the forest and suddenly these creatures were with you. I love that. <laughs> well, it is the it is the butterfly nebula. It's a it's a huge butterfly-shaped cloud of gas that was ejected from a dying star like 3000 light-years from Earth. And what we heard was created from an image of the butterfly nebula taken by the Hubble Space Telescope. And that image was turned into sound by the great folks at System Sounds. And they sweep from left to right over the image, and the location and the quality of the light in the image is translated into sound. The light near the bottom is lower pitched, and the pitch gets higher as the closer you get to the top of the image. And the gas of the nebula is played by stringed instruments and synthetic tones, while the stars are represented by a digital harp. The brightness of the points of the image are represented by volume. And I don't know, don't you think it's like a nebula symphony? Well, there you are. I mean, I I said uh, an orchestra tuning up, but actually it's beyond tuning up. I mean, it was really quite beautiful. Let's listen to that again. Thank you so much for joining us for season two. Mission Interplanetary is produced by Lance Garavi. Our sound designer and engineer is Steven Christensen, and our music was composed by Mario Iniguez. There's so much more great stuff coming in season two, so remember to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review. Email us at interplanetarypodcast at asu.edu. Recommend us to your friends, please do. And follow the Interplanetary Initiative on Twitter for updates. And the handle there is at ii underscore asu. Mission Interplanetary is a production of Arizona State University's Interplanetary Initiative. We'll be back next week asking the big questions about space exploration. The future is interplanetary. We'll see you there.